This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carter. How's it going all? This is David Farhat. Welcome back to International Tax in Africa and in that look. This is a continuation of the conversation you heard in part one. So welcome to part two. One of the things that I think we're all touching on is the role of the of the of taxation in general, whether it is something that can incentivize business or whether it's uh, you can the right of a country to tax has to come from the ability to give its taxpayers something in return and how you then have to put in money into the actual taxation to, to collect the taxation. It's just this like really beautiful, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe not beautiful. I'm a tax nerd, I guess. But listen, listen, embrace it. Embrace it. We're already on the other side. I know, I know. I, I, what I is just, going on here? I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I haven't heard tax and beautiful in the same sentence in a long time. I just think it's really interesting because all of the, this subject is really touching on the like first principles of you will, the, yeah. the role of taxation generally and mm-hmm. and how it affects different people, uh, different companies across the spectrum, uh, whether you're in the developing world or not. And then as a company, whether you're first starting out or not. And yeah, it's just this is fascinating. I, I agree with that. Right. Because this conversation we're having now in the context of Africa and certain, you know, is the same conversation we've been having on this podcast from day one. Right. It evolves a little bit because the issues in each jurisdiction and with with each company will be different. But it's the same conversation. It's, are we at a place, especially looking at all the OECD projects, are we at a place where income tax is doing what it's supposed to do, right? And you look at it, you can look at it from a U.S. perspective, a European perspective, an Africa perspective, an Asia perspective, and the challenges will be a little different, but I think that's the fundamental question. And then are the pillars properly solving that problem with the income tax, Right. And I think you just you end up in this place where you kind of have this bit of a circular debate. And I think that's what you're what you're catching on. And as a tax nerd, it's it's beautiful to talk about. But there are kind of real consequences to governments, to taxpayers, to multinationals and how you deal with it. So kind of one of the one of the solutions I've always found and we've talked about is kind of the treaty network and the map process and competent authority. And we're all saying, okay, we know what we have with, with regards to the rules. We know what we have with regards to each domestic rules. But tax authority, can we sit around a table and get to some kind of rational response to this? So kind of taking it in that direction, Alalande and Zach, you mentioned treaty networks a little bit. What's that network of treaty like on the continent, either within the continent and outside the continent? And what's the level of expertise when it comes to, you know, competent authority matters? Because I think you can deal with a wide range of problems in that forum. And are the resources and are the resources there? Are, are they sophisticated enough? And do you have the treaty network? Treaty network, it, it, from a Nigerian perspective, um, to date we have 16 treaties that are in force. I've been told there are about 20 that are being negotiated. I don't have any idea which countries 
uh, those are being negotiated with, but that's a recent development. So a lot of the treaties that we have that are in force are treaties that have been negotiated more by the developed countries. So a lot of them tilt more towards the OECD model. In terms of how these treaties have worked, they've worked fairly well. We hardly have treaty-related controversy. And recently, of course, with the whole, with the awareness that BEPS has created, we now have a MAP procedure in place. We've always had MAP provisions in our treaty, but I'm not aware of how many times that has been triggered. So you find that in interacting with the tax authorities, these are new to them, but we have these things in place. So I guess what BEPS has done really is just to put machinery in place. And how tested this machinery have been is a different is a different scenario altogether. But I think right now what they're grappling with the most is how to implement these measures in a way that it begins to generate more revenue for the country. And what I see generally is that there's a mismatch in expectation and reality. Uh, Zach was talking about pillar two, and I, I couldn't even relate to that conversation much because my country has refused to sign on to pillar one. And, you know, the rule is if you don't sign up to pillar one, then you can't implement pillar two. So if you're going to implement pillar two, which offers the minimum tax, which looks attractive from afar, but when you take a closer look, by the time you strip all the globe rules, you then begin to wonder whether this, this is really helpful. You know, so right now, Nigeria has an alternative measure, which is the significant economic presence uh, rule, which again actually originated from the OECD. So, you know, before the discussions um, and the studies evolved into the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 proposals, you had um, certain initiatives that the OECD had sort of solutions they had sort of proffered and Nigeria chose the significant economic presence concept. Seemed fairly straightforward and we've been implementing and I don't even see taxpayers complain much about it because when you look at it really, it's just like a turnover tax of sorts. And then there's a, you know, there, there's a threshold to it as well. So it's, it's fairly simple and straightforward as compared to the, to the pillar one rules, which are so complex. And at the end of the day... I was going to jump in there already. I, I think the significant economic presence has been, from a private sector perspective, has been really difficult to deal with just because of the subjectivity of it. And I understand from a government perspective, it's probably a good cover, uh, but I know a lot of companies struggle with it, and specifically in Nigeria, uh, because it's been very subjectively applied, sounds like, right? And I, I can speak even from my own experience, having seen two clients or my clients go through audit in Nigeria to, to really not have a consistent read on that <laughs> the economic but, has been... Zach, to be fair, that, that can be a critique of transfer pricing as a whole. No? I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then going back on the treaty network, I think that's one of the biggest problems, right? Like the treaty network in Africa is very, very weak. Nigeria is probably one of the perfect pictures you will see on the continent in terms of the wide, I'll call that wide because it's actually quite wide. If you go for most of these countries, the treaty network is like two, four, five treaties, right? And that makes it extremely difficult when you come going back into the pillar two rules, 
right? And the way they have designed, even the what used to be famous with the developing countries, the subject of tax rule, I'm coming back to it, is that you will have to go to your treaty partners and renegotiate your treaties. But when you go to most of these countries, you have two treaties, right? So it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. Uh, so the weakness of the treaty network is extremely uh, worrying. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute here and, and put myself in the shoes of one of these countries, right? I, I look at this, I see rules that say, hey, I have to sign on to Pillar 2 uh, or I have to sign on to Pillar 1 in order to get Pillar 2. But that doesn't seem to be the position that, for example, the United States is taking. We've made no moves toward Pillar 1 and we're talking about implementing uh, changes to guilty that would make it Pillar 2 compliant. I look at a treaty network and I see countries like the United States with David's friend, the beat, or the United Kingdom or Australia with diverted profits tax or other countries with digital services taxes, basically doing workarounds for their treaties. So if I'm sitting as a government official in one of these countries, why don't I think treaty network, that's a chump move. I'll just have a gross basis tax in my country for people that are doing business here. It's simple. It's easy to collect. I don't want to do the pillar two math. I certainly don't want to do the pillar one math. And dealing with these treaty partners I, requires me to go through a negotiation process only to have them implement a new tax that they then turn around and say is not part of the treaty. Why is that wrong? I think that you can't really separate a measure of nationalism when it comes to taxation, honestly, because at the end of the day, I think countries should be, should be free to do what works for them. So for instance, take the DST, for instance, countries who have adopted that have simply just created that as a different kind of tax. It's not an income tax, it's, it's just a tax. So if you're going to do business in that jurisdiction, you know it's there. So you then have to make the commercial decision as to whether or not you, you know, this is a tax you're willing to pay. And I think for countries like Nigeria, that might well be something that could happen in the future where you find that, okay, they just decide to create a different kind of tax that's not really an income tax, it's not really a consumption tax. And I don't know how they're going to create it, but create a tax that, you know, helps them still get that revenue that they're they're trying to get without really going through all the the, the rigmarole rolling of all, of all these um, pillar one and pillar two because ultimately I'm trying to attract business into my jurisdiction and I'm trying to get revenue to develop the country um, to move it forward. So I think it's going to get to a point where countries are going to have to sort of be as audacious as the United States um, and say, you know, we're going to do what works for us and and so be it. I think. This whole journey may jolly well end up there. I know that it's a journey that's trying to achieve cohesion and, you know, but I think ultimately things might get to a point where countries say, you know what, this isn't working. Let's all go back and do what works for us. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can see that too. Um, the, the caution I always get, right, or the caution I try to give is that you are not the United States, right? It is great for the U.S. to be doing that, but you are not the U.S. The U.S. can probably afford to do that. I'm not sure that you, and I'm going to single out Cameroon or Rwanda here, I'm not sure that you can afford to do that, right? And the thing I usually try to push is you don't have to go against the rules necessarily, or you don't have to be on the side. Sometimes being in the rules and understanding them and applying them to your context can actually be more beneficial than being against the rules or being on the sidelines. 
right? So, and some of this in um, the pillar one, pillar two, for example, if the the African countries could have used their bargaining power correctly, they could have gotten something really good. And we saw how they, some of them have been able to leverage the, the country by country reporting. We are right now running uh, some of the stimulation of the countries that would be affected by pillar two based on country per country reporting data. And we use that to tell them these are the companies that could be affected. This, as a country, this is probably your target sample. And how are you going to deal with that target sample? Right. So you don't necessarily, I don't feel that you have to be on the sidelines. I feel that you have to be within the rules, but make sure you invest enough to understand them so you can adapt them to your context. And I feel like sometimes that gives you the better outcome. But I think you guys are saying, if not the same thing, very similar things, right? So I don't think you necessarily have to be in the sidelines. I think you have to look at the rules from your country's perspective. Right. I think part of the problem with the OECD and these large projects is too many, especially in the developing world, and I don't think this is just an Africa thing, look at it through the eyes of whether they're former colonial masters or the developed world and say, okay, how does this work? As opposed to saying, okay, what does this work for me and how should that implementation be for my jurisdiction? So I don't think the, the, the delta between I'm going to do what I'm going to pass rules that work for me or have like a similar DST in my jurisdiction is very different than what you're saying, Zach, is, OK, I'm going to be at the table. I'm not going to be a rebel for now, but I'm going to listen to what you're saying. And my implementation will be, you know, you, you say Cameroon. My implementation will be a Cameroonian implementation that takes into account what Cameroon needs. And that's what we're going to go forward with. Again, I don't think those two points are are that far apart. Something you touched on that I thought was very interesting is kind of looking at a, and you mentioned doing work with the African Union, kind of leveraging the influence Africa can have as a whole, as opposed to kind of disparate jurisdictions. Has there been a movement towards that in the in, in the tax area? Have there been some of those conversations? Because I think some of the worries within Africa, right, is if well, if they don't go here, they can go right next door. And whether it's an extractive or something else, they can get the very same thing just by taking a short trip across. So you want to make sure you, quote unquote, behave within those borders. Has there been kind of conversations around collective actions approaching tax? I know they have been talking. I know there's an effort to get the tax administrations to talk to each other, but I'm not aware of a collective kind of continental on the specific tax area. Now I'm going to mention the Africa free trade zone right, which presents an amazing opportunity, and we can talk about that. But if we are talking specifically about tax, I'm not aware of of any uh, continental effort. Yeah, yeah. It's sad, but maybe that's going to start changing because I I know that, for instance, um, at the AU, the African Union, they don't even have a tax committee. They don't even have a tax committee. You have a trade committee, you have an immigration, you have all sorts of committees. There's no tax committee. But on the administration side, you now have um, ATAF, and ATAF is um, the Association of African Tax Administrators. And so now members of ATAF are going back to put pressure on their governments. And so some of that pressure now is seeping through to the AU, and it's becoming, it's becoming obvious now to the AU leaders that they, they need to put tax on the agenda. And Africa, perhaps Africa now needs to come together and have a position. The UN is the one that has been sort of helping to fight Africa's battles. But I want to say Africa, the the UN is pro-developing countries, right? But developing countries isn't just Africa. And you find that, for instance, a, a, a number of countries in the Latin region 
consider themselves as developing countries. But then when you compare them to developing countries in Africa, it's a different picture. When you compare developing countries in Africa to developing countries in Asia, it's still another different picture. So I think African leaders are, from the um, pressure coming from the administrators, are starting to see that I think they now need to put tax on the agenda in the African Union and start having positions. However, one thing also that plagues Africa is the competition that exists, right? So like you said, David, we all have to one degree or another, natural resources and and markets, right? Uh, Of course, when it comes to markets, Nigeria is one of, if not the largest market in Africa, for instance, not every country in Africa is able to boast of that size of market. And when you talk about digitalization and where the world is going and the whole um, talk about value creation, your market size begins to become significant. And so, and you know, so these are the things, there's some competition also within the region that sometimes hinder this sort of unified approach where everyone is trying to be protective of their resources, protective, protective of the access to their markets, and so on and so forth. So, but then again, you know, it depends on what leaders, how leaders are looking at this and if, if they can come to a place where they realize, like, like Zach said, from the same thought that drove the African trade con- free, African, it's such a long name, African free <laughs> trade continental agreement, the same thoughts that drove that, where Africans are starting to see that, hang on, we can trade with one another. Perhaps when they start to see that there's enough to go around, and if we can come together and be a a, a unified force, then perhaps our place at the table when it comes to international tax issues would gain more respect. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. But it's with a that. political thing, you know. Yeah. And there is no there is no tax committee, which is a big unfortunate situation right? and some of the discussions or some of the trips I've, I've, I've had on behalf of the African Union has been have they have been part of fighting illicit illicit financial flows it hasn't been specifically taxed right but I go there to talk about tax but because there is no tax infrastructure per se you have to put it under something else which was illicit financial flows so hoping that changes uh, as much as I would like some unified approach to the rules I um, happen to be not a big fan of unified approaches when it comes to tax, right? Because the the government of Namibia, uh, with which I work regularly, doesn't have the same needs or the same concerns as the government of Nigeria. So I still want Africa to be, and I still foresee Africa to be that place where countries can decide to be the friendliest place for business because they want a 15, while others have other necessities and exigencies and they can set their policies a different place. But at baseline, I, I will advocate for unity of the rules, approach the rules. Not meaningfully different from the European dynamic, right? You have you have big countries in Europe, and then you have countries that you know are not going to get on that train because they have a collection of different interests in terms of inbound investment. And as I've said before, that adds to the complexity of the rules for us and the excitement for as and I've the said, beauty and the, the beauty. beauty Mate, they don't walk of, away from it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just I'm thinking about also we've been talking a little bit about limited resources and where. Maybe as a young practitioner, I need to be focusing uh, my own limited resource energy time in where should I be spending my time studying? You know, what what do I need to be thinking about as a young practitioner? I can give some pointers here, <laughs> take it or leave it. But I, I would say if you're thinking about 
BEPS 2.0 in Africa, I would say pay big attention, pay a lot of attention to qualified domestic minimum taxes or just minimum taxes in general. I'm seeing a lot of uh, countries develop an appreciation for that, uh, whether that's good or bad. I don't know. I'm just stating what I see. I see a lot of appreciation for do domestic minimum taxes. And as you work with private, the private sector, um, I think it would be good to have a good handle on the workings of these domestic taxes and how the interplay is with the BEPS 2.0, especially the GLOBE rules, right? The income inclusion rule subject to tax recall um, and the under tax payment rule. So I, I see that as a very big debate and an area of, of interest. Um, and I also see, and again, staying with our theme here for Africa, I also see a move uh, toward more collective action in Africa, right? The, the free trade agreement is a big testament to that, right? It was a political big stunt. Now they are going ahead and trying to implement it. And maybe we are thinking beyond tax here, but that will have huge implications. That will have tremendous implications. So uh, that's an area I'll try to kind of get up to speed if any interest in working in Africa, because it's going to affect every single aspect of doing business in Africa. And then the incentives. African countries are very well known for giving tax incentives. And all of that is being put to question today. Uh, why would I provide you an incentive if you're going to be topped up on an income inclusion role in France and pay the 15% there anyway? Um, and that presents a number of, of issues um, and a lot of projects going on with these uh, countries and companies because some companies have been locked into uh, disincentives for the life of their investment. And now the countries are trying to question it. So there is a lot of debate for uh, anticipated controversy on stability, stability or stabilization clauses. So I, I would really invest, invest time with that. So those, those are just a couple of things that come to mind uh, when I, talk, I think about African tax. From the company perspective, does the changing landscape of African countries in regards to trans, uh, implementing transfer pricing regulation present more risk or while they're still not set, or does it present more of an opportunity? If I can comment on that, I think both. Because my response to Meiji was going to be for her to still keep an eye on transfer pricing. It's going to remain relevant. And, you know, especially with regard to intangibles, given the spread of the fintechs and the whole general concept of digitalization, in, in, intangibles becoming more and more relevant by the day. And that's one area that presents complexities, which coming to Stefan presents opportunities and risks risks because there are so many uncertainties. And so, you know, when we're advising clients, sometimes it's like we're still walking on eggshells because again, there's a, there's a, there's a lack of comparables that gives us the confidence to say, you know, it's black or white. It's, it's still quite a, a gray area. So um, transfer pricing as it relates to intangibles is very relevant, presents risks and opportunities. Managing PE risks, permanent establishment risks, is another area because, of course, that's where it all starts, isn't it? Um, do we have a PE? Should they even be taxing us? And another area that's also interesting, which obviously is not a main topic for us today, is also in relation to consumption taxes, VAT to be specific. VAT is a very popular tax in Africa. And um, I don't know, Zach has worked um, across Africa, but I know that quite a number of countries in West Africa have a VAT regime. And VAT is seen as a low-hanging fruit also 
by the government. So that's an area to look at. Right now, the VAT regime in Nigeria is also evolving in terms of how to draw companies, non-resident companies that don't have a taxable presence or a PE to start to help government collect VAT. So those sorts of things, again, also present opportunities as well as risks, but to keep an eye on if you're focusing on Africa. Well, I hate to be the one to say this because I'm really enjoying this session and I wish we could go forever, but we're coming up on time. So any final thoughts from our, from our guests before we wrap up? I'll go first then. Well, uh, just to say a huge thank you to you, David and Nate and Stefan and Zach. And of course, lovely to meet you, Matey. I've enjoyed myself um, um, chatting through all these issues. Uh, just to say that tax is exciting. Um, it's evolving very fast in Africa. And in, in spite of the difficulties and the complexities, we still see a lot of cross-border transactions taking place. You know, I practice in Nigeria, a huge market economy. And so, you know, there's a lot of focus on, on, on this region. There are opportunities in the fintech space, extractives, maybe not so much on a cross-border level anymore, but also we also have the telecom space as well as another interesting sector where we still have a lot of foreign investment. And so Africa remains relevant. Tax in Africa remains relevant. BEPS remains relevant. And uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Great, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for doing this, Lolanda. We really appreciate it. I echo the thanks from Lolade. Thanks for having us. Um, nice to meet you, Amite. I've had calls with Nate and David and Stefan before. I, I, I will just maybe putting words here. Every single client I have in the private sector uh, that is present in Africa has seen Africa to be their fastest growing side of the fastest growing region. Right. So there is something happening there. Right. And tax comes as usually to be in the middle of it all. So every single major company that has a presence or thinking about a presence in Africa really needs to understand how these big roles that we're talking about at, multi at an international level really boils down to these African countries, some of them really large, some of them really small. And our work is cut out for us, right? Like international tax will continue to be the major, sometimes guiding principle for these investments. And it's always a pleasure. I've had the pleasure of working on Africa, both sides, business investments from the U.S. into Africa and some African companies coming into the U.S. And there has never been a dull moment. And I can only anticipate that it will intensify just because of the economics of the continent and, and everything happening there. Um, and I'm very excited to always be talking about this. No, thank you both so much. This was an, uh, an excellent session, and I can promise you we'll be chasing you guys to come back to, uh, to do a follow-up, maybe even talk about VAT some more, knowing that's one of Nate's favorite topics. Anytime you want to come back. Thank you so much to everyone. This has been another session of uh, Guilty Conscience. Thank you for joining us. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com.